Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Sturgeon are an ancient fish, and traditional tribal connections run deep. There are numerous species of sturgeon across the country, and many of them are threatened. Several tribes have developed sophisticated sturgeon fishing methods connected to tribal knowledge, and they also have insights into helping protect the populations of the gentle giants that are so important for food and traditional stories. We'll hear about those right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A bill that would codify provisions of the Indian Child Welfare Act has been approved by the South Dakota House Judiciary Committee on a vote of 9 to 3. The bill requires the Department of Social Services to make active efforts to prevent removal of Native children from Native families. ICWA currently requires that measure, but the federal law has been challenged before the U.S. Supreme Court with an opinion pending. According to online reports, 10 states have already enacted their own Indian child welfare statutes, and five states, including South Dakota, are considering bills this year. Victoria Wicks has this report. South Dakota State Representative Perry Poirier introduced House Bill 1168. She told the House committee that poverty underlies many of tribes' challenges and the vast majority of Native children removed from their homes are removed for neglect. Neglect can often look like poverty to some people. She said ICWA requires active efforts from states to keep Indigenous families together, but South Dakota law is largely silent. There's nothing in code that outlines active efforts. All it says is that the state must have due regard to ICWA. The Department of Social Services was represented at the hearing by General Counsel Jeremy Lippert. He noted that the U.S. Supreme Court is currently deliberating the constitutionality of ICWA, and when its opinion comes out, the state might have to recalibrate. We may very well have a complex array of specific portions of the federal statute that stand or fall, to which the state's courts, legislature, and agencies will have to respond. After witnesses testified, Representative Tim Reich spoke in favor of the bill. The former longtime Secretary of Corrections said South Dakota's prison population, both male and female, is disproportionately Native. I'm not convinced that passage of this bill is going to change anything in a huge way, but I think we've got to try everything we can. The committee approved the bill, and it now goes to the full House. For National Native News, I'm Victoria Wicks in Rapid City, South Dakota. Over the course of seven days, Team Alaska won 145 medals from the Arctic Winter Games in Canada, 58 gold, 44 silver, and 43 bronze. Alaska was second in the overall standings behind the Yukon Territories. Two 18-year-old Alaska natives were in a tie for racking up the most gold for Team Alaska. Colton James Paul from Kipnuk and Parker Benjamin Kennick of Nome each won five medals. Both competed in Arctic Sports, a competition that features native games traditionally used to sharpen survival skills. Kennick says this was his first Arctic Winter Games, so he did not expect to do very well, but says the high level of international competition plus encouragement inspired him to do his best. With old friends, new friends, an audience, it'll lift you up. And you'll typically break your own records and surprise yourself, put on a show for everybody, have fun all around. And it's nice to watch everybody do their best and 
and break their own records. Closing ceremonies were held Saturday. The games will take place in Alaska next year. The Yorok tribe is sponsoring a day at the state capitol in California on Tuesday in efforts to reduce violence against Native Americans. Tribal leaders, advocates, families, and state lawmakers are gathering in Sacramento for the first Missing and Murdered Indigenous People Day. They'll address issues involving MMIP, including advocating for bills involving public safety and protections for foster youth. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This Valentine's Day, you can give all your sweethearts truly unique gifts from SweetgrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean and Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Lake sturgeon were once plentiful in the Great Lakes. Now, populations of the mighty fish that can live up to 100 years are less than 1% of their former numbers. Ojibwe bands and other tribes in the upper Midwest have a close relationship with the fish that are largely unchanged since the time of the dinosaurs. Those tribes continue spearfishing and other traditional methods for harvesting sturgeon while also developing sophisticated programs to improve populations. Despite all the efforts, many species of sturgeon are threatened. Lake sturgeon are scheduled to be listed as endangered next year, and all five species of ocean-going Atlantic sturgeon are threatened or endangered. Today we'll find out about traditions related to sturgeon and what's being done to improve their numbers. You can join the discussion today by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We have three guests on our show today joining us from the Red Cliff Nation is Marvin Defoe. He is an elder and a tribal preservation officer for the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians. He is also a Red Cliff Band tribal member. Marvin, welcome to the show, and, and please feel free to further introduce yourself. Yeah, bonjour. My name is uh, Shingwe Benet. That's my native name. Uh, also, uh, that is my clan. I'm very excited to be here because the sturgeon uh, that is my that's my family's clan. Uh, but first off, I'd like to also acknowledge uh, all the listeners, all the listeners across uh, across the United States and Alaska and so forth, listening to this program. I'm very excited. I'm very excited to share some of our culture, some of our stories, some of our traditions, 
some of the knowledge uh, knowledge that we have uh, related to the sturgeon. So uh, I'm located on the southern shore of Lake Superior, one of the biggest uh, freshwater lakes in the world. Um, my home that I live is a quarter mile away from the lake, about 22 miles of shoreline uh, amongst, uh, amongst the islands, uh, islands we call Wainabujubinus, uh, different islands, but I uh, uh, just wanted to give you a little picture of where I am and who I am and, and uh, how, how I live. I'm going to share that a little later. But uh, again, again, I'm very, very glad to participate in the um, perpetuation, the survival of our sturgeon that we so dearly love. Well, Marvin, thank you for all that background information, and we're really excited to have you on the show today as well. Also joining us uh, from Lac de Flambeau, Wisconsin, is Greg Johnson. He's a language and art teacher for the Lac de Flambeau tribe. He's also a hunter and a fisherman, and he is a member of the Lac de Flambeau tribe. Greg, thanks for joining us as well, and also feel free to inter further introduce yourself. My name is Greg Johnson. Um, my Ojibwe name is Biskakane, and um, I come from the Lac de Flambeau Reservation, which is located in the northern part of central Wisconsin, and uh, we are known for our spearfishing and our hunting, and uh, the sturgeon is one of our uh, targeted fish that we, we use to uh, feed our families, and uh, we just recently, um, ourselves as a tribe, um, just started harvesting sturgeon again within the last uh, maybe 15 years, <clears throat> and so yeah, we, uh, we hold that sturgeon, just like our elder Marvin, we hold that sturgeon very, very high in our culture. And uh, he provides us uh, good food and, and nutrients for ourselves and our, our families and our babies. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share a little bit about what I know. Well, happy to have you on the show, Greg, and, and looking forward to, to hearing more uh, about the sturgeon and, of course, their cultural significance. Our third guest is speaking with us from Kashina, Wisconsin, Douglas Cox. He is the land management director for the Menominee Tribe of Wisconsin, and he is also a member of the Menominee Indian Tribe. Doug, welcome to NAC as well, and, and feel free to further introduce yourself if you'd like. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Doug Cox. Um, my name given to me in my Menominee way is Wasal Kane, and we're here on the Menominee Reservation. Um, similar to, to my brothers in the north there, um, the sturgeon are really significant to us, and we've been working on reintroduction of these fish to our homeland here at Menominee Reservation for a number of years. We reside on the banks of the Wolf River where these lake sturgeon migrate up from Lake Winnebago near Oshkosh, Wisconsin, unable to reach us because of dams, and we've been working on this issue for a long time, and I'll tell you more about it as we go. Thanks, Sean, and and also welcome to listeners. You bet, Doug, and we're definitely looking forward to learning more about some of these challenges that are facing sturgeon there in your, in your local waters. Marvin, please start us off today in, in, by explaining 
the cultural significance of sturgeon to the Red Cliff people? Uh, well, the, uh, you know, like I said, the sturgeon certainly is, has been part of our Anishinaabe uh, family, including including other Anishinaabe is our clan. It's been it's been in our stories. I don't know. I guess since the beginning of time, you know, you you started off talking about that sturgeon living with the dinosaurs, you know, and and that is very true. You know, that's very true. But you know, the background is it's kind of it's like it's it's right in it's it's right in our blood who we are, and that sturgeon and that. Now that sturgeon, to me, is uh, is a teacher. That sturgeon, to me, is connected <clears throat> connected to the universe. Uh, that sturgeon is connected. In fact, it's even connected to the stars. <clears throat> to the stars. Um, so it, it's very. Uh, it's it's like protecting our relatives. You know, Eddie. You know, anyone, for an example, anyone who is belongs to the fish clan, those are my relatives. Uh, so it's like the sturgeon, uh, sturgeon to me and our people is like our family. And uh, one of the things, one of the things we do, you know, you you protect your family, you protect your family, and we're getting very concerned, uh, very concerned with the uh, downfall, downfall of that of that fish and that sturgeon throughout, throughout time here. Um, so, so that's the significance to that. Now, Marvin, one of the things I find most fascinating about sturgeon is just how large they can grow. Uh, what's the biggest sturgeon you've ever seen? <laughs> yeah, there's very numbers, numbers of sturgeon. I heard, you know, my, uh, my, my, uh, great grandfather stuff. I heard he caught a sturgeon almost reached 300 pounds. And uh, you know, I, I make birch bark canoes, so I'm out in the lake canoeing. So one time I was out around Redcliffe, we were on the lake canoeing, and I looked down in the water, and I said, man, that's a big log. That's a big log down there. And pretty soon that log started started moving and swimming away. And I swear, <laughs> I swear that, that uh that sturgeon was uh as big as my canoe it was a huge a huge fish a huge sturgeon so i mean i've seen sturgeon you know anywhere from that size in uh in lake superior to probably some that are about five inches you know so there's all different variety of different sizes sturgeon 300 pounds, as big as a canoe. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Well, well, Marvin, tell us more about what it takes to fish for sturgeon. Well, our, uh, like, you know, probably Greg later on, or he'll probably talk about how they fish sturgeon down, down Norway. Uh, up here where I live, I'm about 150 miles away from Greg North on Lake Superior. Um, we... Uh, we are on the lake. Certainly, we have treaty rights, and those treaty rights were retained, retained by our ancestors to uh, get fish or animals or deer, whatever sustenance. And so, our community, Redcliffe community, is kind of noted for a 
uh, fishing community. You know, we got some big boats, big boats out there, about 30 big boats that uh, set nets to uh, to catch fish. And uh, when we're out there throughout the uh, year setting our nets, catching fish, and once in a while, we'll, incidentally, we'll catch a sturgeon. And sometimes, uh, sometimes we bring the, bring the fish in and eat it. And uh, a lot of times, a lot of times, if they're if they're kind of small or whatever, we'll let them go. You know, we'll we'll let we'll let that sturgeon go in the lake. Um, so it's it's primarily uh, we don't target primarily here the fish, but when we do catch the fish, we take the fish, and because uh, it was given to us, uh, given to us to prepare, prepare it. You know, sometimes we'll smoke it and. Uh, and do different things with that certain fish. Interesting discussion here, learning more uh, about the sturgeon, uh, a fish that can grow enormously large, 300 pounds. Uh, Marvin Defoe describes it as larger than a canoe or as large as a canoe. looks like a huge log uh, under the surface of the water. We're going to learn more about sturgeon, learn more about their natural habitat, learn more about some of the risks and the threats that the fish face. And uh, we've got three guests who are uniquely qualified to provide that information to us. And uh, really looking forward to continuing this discussion after a short break. If you fish yourself, if you're familiar with sturgeon, We'd sure love to have you provide some input into our discussion today. And you can do that by calling us at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848 to share what you know about sturgeon. We'll be right back. It's the time of year to start calculating your taxable income and looking over any receipts you've collected in a shoebox. The IRS deadline isn't until April, but the earlier you start, the better prepared you are. We've got expert tax advice coming up on the next Native America Calling. Bonjour. Nandawaban dun Medicaid Anike Bindagebi Agade Mazanayagan Jagunawain Dag was yun. O Dagi Kenda Nawa Gwayak in Dayan Anishanabe Akwasi Wigamigung. Gaundinagadeg, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. We hope you're enjoying today's broadcast of Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. You can join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. We'd love to hear from someone living in a Native community who fishes for sturgeon. If that's you, call 1-800-996-2848. Or for anyone else listening, what questions do you have about this fish? Call in with your comments or questions at 1-800-99-NATIVE. Uh, let's bring another one of our guests into the conversation now, Doug Cox. And Doug, earlier we heard Marvin talk about the cultural significance of sturgeon and some of these other issues, but uh, we also need to remember that the fish is at risk. And uh, I know you've been working for several decades to reintroduce sturgeon in local waters. What are the biggest challenges? Yeah, thanks, Sean. And yeah, it's good to hear those 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 ways, you know, from 
my brothers there. It's always good to hear those differences. So we, we, you know, have been struggling with these dams that um, were placed on the Wolf River, which is which is where Menominee is located. Um, they're below the reservation boundaries, so these two dams block the migration of the sturgeon. Kashina Falls, which is where our reservation is, um, in the middle of the reservation on the Wolf River, um, is known in our way as a squamit. Um, that that means coming home. So that sturgeon, that namau, um, came home to that falls. Historically, there, there's just quite of stories and legends about the gathering of those fish at Kashina Falls and the gathering of our people and the ceremonies related to that to that spring migration of those fish home to Kashina Falls. That that lies about seven miles um, above the first dam that's below the reservation, and the second one's about five miles below that. So those those fish migrating from Lake Winnebago every spring can only make it up to those dams and and Wisconsin DNR um, collects collects fish at those dams every spring and tags them and collects eggs and rears those eggs um, in their hatcheries. So there's thousands of fish that gather at the base of those dams in the spring. It's a pretty popular viewing spot for people in Wisconsin and, and national public to come to those dams and see those fish. So we, we've been asking for migratory routes around those dams via fishways in the uppermost dam. We've made some progress over the years via a Federal Energy Regulatory Commission license that exists on that upper dam. We've gotten a settlement agreement with that owner to to actually install a fishway um, at that dam here in coming years. But again, that's the upper dam. It doesn't address the lower dam where all the fish are. DNR agreement, we have an MOU with them that um, has DNR moving fish by truck around that dam. So we, we shock them in a river below the dam, put them in a truck, bring them around the dam, bring them up to the reservation. Annually, we've been moving about 100 fish a year via that MOU with Wisconsin DNR and releasing fish um, just below Kashina Falls within the reservation boundary. Now, how is that working out? These uh, these alternative routes and, and, and hauling 100 fish a year by truck is that enough to sustain a, a sufficient population for your needs there uh, for the Menominee people? Yeah, and we were fortunate enough in the early years to tag a lot of those fish. We radio tagged them so we could track their movements. And um, you know, Sean, fish are fish, so they they like to swim. <laughs> and. <laughs> Sturgeon, particularly, are migratory, so you know, they're 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 anadromous, is is what the term is, and they come from the lake, come up the river to spawn. When they're done spawning, their natural activity is to head back to the lake. So you know, for thousands and thousands of years, those fish did that before dams were ever there, and now the fish hit a dam, they stop and spawn right there, turn around, go back. These fish that we moved around the dams, same instinct. They turn around and do their thing on reservation and, and head back to the lake, down through both of those dams. So we have not retained enough fish within the reservation on in our waters to to make it uh, significant for the tribe. Now, are there similar concerns for sturgeon in other communities uh, there in parts of the U.S. and even Canada? 
Oh, sure. It, it's it's not an unusual um, event to hear that bland, dams are blocking migration of of anadromous, especially anadromous fishes. So you know, it it's sturgeon um, are endangered. You know, generally in in relation to their to their health and their populations, um, and really, the the main reason that's happening is because of dams. Because of dams. Hmm. Uh, how much do you know about other types of sturgeon? I mean, we were talking, I think, primarily about lake sturgeon today. But what about some of these these sturgeon uh, along the Atlantic in in areas there? Are are they facing what what kind of challenges uh, are those fish facing? Sure, similar. You know, when we first got started into the program um, via some grant money, and we were able to work with agencies like Fish and Wildlife Service um, and United States Geological Service, who has a great biological division in the east, they were doing quite a number of studies um, on that very issue of passing sturgeon over dams and, and what kind of facility would work. And in the east, they were working on all species of sturgeon, not just like sturgeon. Mm -hmm. Now, in addition to the, the cultural significance uh, of sturgeon to native people and the food source, uh, what kind of role do, do the sturgeon play just in the overall ecosystem there in these waterways that we're talking about today? Yeah, you know, in, in, in fish relationships are, are not unknown to, to biologists. I mean, in the Wolf River here where we are, it's similar. There are other species of fish that, that have these relationships with lake sturgeon. And, and in fact, there's a species or two of mussels in the river that rely on sturgeon to, to migrate themselves. So as the sturgeon come upstream, those mussel larvae hang on to that sturgeon's body and they deposit as they move up the river. And if you look at the composition of species in that river below the dams, those exist above the dams, uh, not so much. And you know what's the reason? Well, it's because sturgeon can't move naturally through that system. Well, uh, really concerning information here today, but also uh, a lot of really inspiring information as well with regard to the sturgeon population and, and the culture, of course, too. And anyone with a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. And let's go back to Greg Johnson now. And Greg, uh, we heard Marvin talk uh, about the cultural significance of sturgeon there among the Red Cliff people. And... Um, how about your people, the Lac de Flambeau people, and the cultural significance of sturgeon? Yeah, so um, I have this picture hanging in my house, and um, it's one of my uh, great uncles. And uh, he's standing there with a uh, sturgeon, and uh, the uh, sturgeon is uh, tied to this pole. And he was close to six foot, but the sturgeon is almost seven feet long. And I'm looking at the picture right now, and he's in his overalls, and um, he was... Uh, he harvested this sturgeon through the ice in about 1930. And so it's an old black and white photo. And there was an elder, his name was Oza Wabik from our community here. He he had talked about, he was there, he was he was a younger man at the time, but he was there when um, my uncle speared that sturgeon through the ice, you know. And that, in, in those days, that was just uh, right after the uh, Great Depression. And so, you know, getting something like that to come through your whole Ojibwe people are, are kind of opportunistic. You know, they'll take, say we go out hunting uh, for deer 
and we see some ducks, you know, sometimes we'll grab those ducks and bring those home with us so we can feed our family because that's the food that's the healthiest for our people. And so what he did was he, uh, he was actually uh, spearing through the ice with a wooden decoy for a muskie, and the sturgeon comes up, and uh, he, he got the sturgeon, you know, and he uh, quartered it up and passed it around. And, uh, everybody ate the roll, the eggs, and, you know, uh, the village was happy. And it was the middle of winter, and, you know, people were very thankful for that. And so he remembered that, you know, he that my uncle uh, called upon other young men from the community to come over and help him cut cut a hole in the ice, open that hole up bigger to get that huge 300-pound uh, sturgeon out there. And so, you know, it isn't like that anymore. So what happened was, like, uh, our, our Menominee friend there, what he was saying, um, there's dams everywhere. There's uh, no access for these fish to roam around and, and multiply like they did long ago. And the, the sturgeons that we do currently have in our waters here are very, very old. And uh, they, they started a, a reintroduction program probably 15, 20 years ago. And so we're starting to see a few more sturgeons. But this is the end of the line, just like as in the Menominee community. Um, the fish have to go somewhere else because they're here now and this is where they spawn. But, you know, we have these dams that prevent them from going down back down the river. And um, I guess down south of the reservation, kind of southwest where all the dams are located, the hydroelectric dams, the, it's the same story. The fish come up to the dam and they can't, they can't breach it. They can't break through and uh, get to their ancestral waters. But that stuff is ingrained in them. And so these sturgeons are... You know, they're constantly looking for that place to drop their eggs. And they, they want to come home by us. And, you know, they want to, we're, we're told they want to come up here and they want to release their eggs and make the future generations. And they also want to feed us. And so when I look at that photo, those are my thoughts. And, you know, that's our, our custom here. That was a big staple of our food is now because of, you know, um, the dams and the American dream. You know, a lot of our, our fish species are suffering. Now we can't rely on that fish like like uh, my great uncle did. Now, are there what about folks that that fish for a living there in, in the community, and, and how are they able to deal with these uh, rapidly diminishing numbers in the population of the sturgeon? There, how, how are they make do? Well, so what happened was um, a few years ago, uh, there was a question that was brought up. Um, I, I looked at this uh, picture of, of my great uncle. And I said, why aren't we harvesting sturgeon? So I went and asked our, our reps, and I said, well, how can we get a sturgeon? He says, you can't do it. The state won't allow it. And so there was a battle in there we had to, uh, with our tribe. So we wound up getting a ceremonial harvest permit that we would use on a deer out of season. So we went and got a ceremonial harvest permit for a sturgeon. And uh, they had never done that before. They never used it on anything other than uh, deer. And so I said, well, I want, I want the first permit, so I'm going to go get one. So I, I, I got in a lot of trouble through the DNR, and, you know, I, I got a couple fines. And eventually what happened was through uh, constant resilience and uh, just determination, uh, sturgeon fishing opened up for a lot of tribal members in our area now. And so now we can harvest sturgeons because of uh, some of the things that we, we've done. We put our, kind of our necks on the line, so to speak. But... You know, those are some of the things that we have to do in order to get heard, in order to get the, the food that our ancestors had. And so, you know, there's a few of us willing to take that risk, you know, like my brother Northern, uh, Marvin up north there, their tribe, 
that's ingrained in their DNA, and that's a part of their 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 fishing ritual. And it used to be that way here. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to um, retain that and the little bit of what we have and reintroduce that, that food back into our families through cultural practices like spearing. And so, yeah, that's, a, that's an important role to have. Well, tell us more about the cultural practice of, of spearing and, and how does that work exactly when you go out in the water and, and spear sturgeon? Yeah, so there's a few different ways. Um, one of the ways that the uh, non-natives borrowed from the, uh, the native population is using a wooden decoy. What they'll do is they'll go out on the ice and they'll chisel a hole or uh, cut a hole with their auger, and then they put up a dark house around them, and they use uh, decoys, and they use these other uh, methods to draw that sturgeon. And, and so it's an annual um, celebration down on Lake Winnebago, and this is this is the ironic part. A lot of Native Americans that that spearfish, there's a lot of non-Native opposition constantly every day. You go on these online forums, you're going to read about it, and you're going to you're going to see the backlash. But what happens is the state of Wisconsin is allowing non-natives to use a Native American fishing method to harvest sturgeons, and so that's the ironic thing. You know, we have non-Native people harvesting sturgeons that traditionally belong on the Menominee Reservation, and so you know we have this back on. So. You can get it through the ice in that method, or the other one is when they come up the river to spawn in the springtime. We go in there and we uh, kind of just look around, watch for a per- the perfect size sturgeon, which isn't too big or too small, kind of in the middle. And those are the ones that we'll, we'll wade in the uh, rapids and we'll hunt them with our spears. That's the uh, other way that we do it here. Now, these non-native spearfishers that you describe, what's their motivation? Are they sports people or are they in it for commercial interests? You know, I think some of them do eat them, but I think it's more bragging rights. You know, they got their picture for their uh, their social media and their friends. So I do believe that they are sports fishermen. But um, I'm not really sure what they do with the fish. You know, in our culture, there's a lot of uses to that fish. The skin we can use for different things. There's also an adhesive, a kind of a glue that we can use that comes from that sturgeon. There's the eggs. There's the bones. There's a lot of things inside that sturgeon that are culturally significant to a lot of Anishinaabe people. But I'm not sure I'm not really sure on the other side of the fence what the non natives are doing with them other than, you know, putting them in uh on their wall or, or whatever. Is there any kind of a a market for, for sturgeon there, like in, in stores or supermarkets or anything? I think there was back in the, um before the nineteen uh, thirties there was that's when the uh, big fish die off happened. A lot of people were we're commercializing the uh, sturgeon fishing. And I think our, our friend from the Menominee Reservation can probably speak more to that because uh, I know it has impacted um, their way of life. But all over the state of Wisconsin, in a, a lot of the rivers and, and the uh, the creeks, there was a lot of sturgeon back in the early 1900s, but it, it got overfished and overharvested. And I do believe reading, um, it was actually one time a commercial fish. So yes, it, it was definitely a commercial fish one time. Okay. Well, uh, back to, to Douglas Cox. And, Doug, we do have to take a break in about another minute. But uh, anything to add with regard to, to sturgeon uh, at one time, a commercial market there for the fish? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you can see pictures. If you look that up, uh, those commercial fisheries, especially the Great Lakes, um, they were piling them up on the shores um, like logs. What they were targeting were, were this commercialism. But also there was a, a part in that sturgeon that they used for a uh, 
what they call the isinglass. Not sure exactly, but it was in Model T's. Model A is one of them. And they, they sought them surgeon out just for that big waste of a beautiful resource and a culturally significant resource. And that took a big toll on these fish back then. Well, folks, uh, learning all about sturgeon today, uh, some of these risks that the fish face, and also a lot of the culture and the history uh, surrounding the, uh, the sturgeon fish and, uh, and tribal people in the upper Midwest. And anyone with a question or a comment, our phone lines are open, so you can get right through to our producers. Our number is 1-800-996-2848. Stay with us. We've got uh, more conversation right after this break. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org, or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Plenty of time, folks, to chime in on our conversation about sturgeon today. Call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's get some calls going. Just give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. And let's go back to Marvin Defoe. He is an elder and a tribal preservation officer for the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians. And Marvin, um, this year marks the 40th anniversary of your tribe's treaty rights to fish, and I understand you were involved in that fight 40 years ago. Yeah, I was. I was involved in that uh, uh, 40 years ago, uh, reintroducing, reacclaiming our treaty rights to hunt and gather, and you know, to our uh, to our treaties. And Greg alluded to that. A little bit there. Part of that was we, uh, you know, you you couldn't even go catch a fish; you'd be arrested. You know, you know, to feed your family. I know here in Redcliffe, there's many of our elders, uh, even before that time, um, got arrested for having a deer, uh, had their guns taken away. Um, you know, catching a fish to feed your family, et cetera, et cetera. And those uh, those rights those rights were were uh, negotiated with the United States government uh, for for our people to survive, and, and we reaffirmed it, reaffirmed those rights. So that 40th anniversary, certainly to all our tribes, which by the way, uh, by the way, you know, I'm in Redcliffe and uh, we're swagging and I mean, there's there's 11 tribes and that. Uh, are encompassed in in those particular treaty rights, and it's it's parts of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Um, but you know, I I can't help uh, I can't help but think of uh, times when when I was at the boat landing, trying to reaffirm my rights and get rocks thrown right in my face. 
you know, or or be, having insulted, uh, being insulted for just just trying trying to feed my family. There is an elder, and there is an elder here in Redcliffe. Uh, Kenny Bassney's his name was, and his whole life he had to, he had to hide. He had to go set his net at night, and he had to go do this. He, to the day that he died, he could not understand how in the heck, uh, how in the heck. What I'm doing so wrong that I want to catch a fish to feed the family that I love, mm. and they had to go through that. And a lot of our ancestors, people had to go through that, but those treaty rights certainly reaffirmed it. Okay, well, really, really uh, <clears throat> difficult to hear these stories that you're describing, Marvin, and the the abuse that uh, people fishing such as yourself uh, had to endure, but. I do want to congratulate you for your, for your role and, of course, your people's success in, uh, in these, these treaty rights. And I also want to ask you, I mean, how does it make you feel now, knowing that you and others worked so hard 40 years ago to ensure these rights, and then uh, hearing stories uh, like what Greg describes uh, of non-native uh, spearfishers out there using traditional native techniques to, to harvest uh, the sturgeon? Yeah, I do, I do want to say, and I do want to say certainly those treaty rights certainly were negotiated with the United States. But even before we had them treaty rights, we had we had treaty rights already. We already had a treaty with the spirits, with the creator, with uh, with nature. And that's called I call that uh, universal law. Universal that was the the that was given to us by the by the creator with many, many, many stories, not just the fish, not just the sturgeon, but the deer. There's many, many stories that were given to that. It's just like, you know, it's kind of like you got, you know, to go uh, for the sportsman to go hunt a, hunt a deer, they got to purchase a, a deer license. Well, what I'm talking about, what I'm talking about for us to get a permit, you know, we have a feast. We put our tobacco down. We ask permission. We give reverence. We give thanks, and that's that's done every every season. You know, every season we do it in a ceremonial way, uh, and we're we're operated by the uh, we operate by the laws, the the spiritual laws that was given to us to harvest. You know, to get them, to get them animals, to get to, to get that fish, um, but. You know, one thing, one thing with that though, is you know you talk about these dams and you talk about things, you know, suppressing, uh, suppressing the skirt. And I, I always think of this. I always think of this. What do you think? What do you think the land would be like five thousand years ago? You know, what do you, what do you think that might look like? There are stories I heard when them sturgeon were running up them rivers. They were so plentiful that you could run right across the river right on your backs. <laughs> like yeah, a log roller, right it sounds on, like. Right. Yeah, you could run right on the river. There are stories of fish in Lake Superior that the lake trout were over uh, 50, 60 pounds. So I can't ima- imagine how life was for indigenous people living on this land uh, you know the animals, the land. It must have been in, in the Lake Superior. The water was so pure, so pure you could you could drink it 
you know, you could drink it just like an artesian well, the water. But today, today there's certain factors, certainly dams, but there's certain factors that also assist in depleting, in depleting our resources. You know, um, 90 percent uh, of the sturgeon amongst us here has been depleted around the Great Lakes. Ninety percent. Ninety percent of that fish has been depleted. Uh, well, it was certainly a, a land of plenty, and Marvin, I, I'm I'm so grateful to to talk with an elder such as yourself who can share these stories and remind us uh, of what uh, our lands were like uh, at one point. And and I really, really like what you say about universal law, and that is so so true. And um, Greg, I, I want to bring you back into the conversation. Um, and, you know, we're learning so much about the history here and, and the culture going back in some cases decades, in some cases hundreds, even thousands of years. And uh, the younger people in your community, are they interested in, in, in learning how to fish for sturgeon and some of these other um, harvesting methods that uh, you folks have been practicing for millennia? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what happened was... Um... When I was young, there was a lot of elderly men around the, our, our reservation here that would go out spearing, and that was prior to the reestablishment of the uh, treaty rights. And so uh, the, re, the reaffirmed treaty rights. And so what would happen was um, we had these uh, gentlemen that would go out on the ice, and they would get these fish, and we always thought that was so amazing, you know. But again, like uh, Marvin was talking about, when they did that, they put themselves and their families at risk. You know, they were providing um, food for their families. And so sometimes these guys would sneak off the reservation onto a lake they weren't supposed to go on, and they would harvest these muskies. And so, again, putting themselves at risk, that, that, that was a real issue in those days, you know. But today, um, because of treaty rights and because of uh, the way we portray ourselves when we harvest these fish, you know, we try to be resilient and just go out and do it no matter what, you know. These young people are seeing that. And so today, now uh, we have hundreds of spear fishermen from our reservation that are probably under 40 years old. We have a lot of young guys out there and, and ladies as well. We have a lot of people that are really interested in not only the spear fishing culture, but the culture of making the decoy and the culture of uh, making the spear. And we even have a group of young men from our reservation that also go out and spear the old way or they use what's, what's called a budgie scoey gun, almost like a little teepee on the ice that's wrapped with blankets instead of a, a plastic tent where a lot of fishermen currently in the uh, modern days use. So you're, you're seeing a lot of the uh, younger people getting involved and um, they're also learning that food sovereignty, that fish that comes at that lake is food sovereignty. Food sovereignty doesn't only mean gardening and, and you know, uh, produce it's also the blackberries it's the maple sugar and it's those fish it's that sturgeon that my uncle got a long time ago and so you know these kids are being raised as this is the norm this is how you live and this is how you provide for your family and so it's really a really cool thing to witness our young men and women on the reservation providing the fish to their families now, Greg, are they learning these skills primarily at home, or are there after-school programs, or any other ways that some of this teaching is is kind of formalized there in the community? Oh, I'm one of the instructors at the uh, the grade school and the high school here, 
And we cover that a little bit, but we're not really concerned with that because a lot of that culture, that spearfishing culture, comes through your family. Mm-hmm. And in, in many cases, in many cultures, there's coming of age ceremonies. And so when a man or a lady gets to be a certain age, their first harvest, their first kill, their first deer, their first rabbit, their first partridge, their first fish, they're all uh, part of that um, coming of age ceremony. So when you get those things, you have a little ceremony and your elders and your community members, your relatives all come and they support you. And they'll gift you stories, they'll gift you knowledge, how to take care of that fish and, and so on and so forth. They'll gift you maybe a spear or, you know, a gun or a bullet or whatever, you know, a knife. And so it's really important to carry tradition forward. And um, when you occupy your, your life with these traditional style of harvesting and, and living off the land, like, again, I said, food sovereignty, it comes all the way back. We take care of ourselves. We don't need to eat fish sticks. Then that's the best food for us and our children. And Greg, you have me thinking, I mean, what is the best way to prepare and eat, eat sturgeon? Well, like Marvin said earlier, you know, what we do is we, we're big on smoking fish in our community. We smoke whitefish, muskie, northern, even walleye sometimes. But that sturgeon, that's top tier. That's the best stuff. They said that um, you can smoke that. There's different ways, different types of brines you can use. We also make one from maple sugar that we use, and it is phenomenal. So, yeah. Um, that's the other part of it too, and we always tease people, people from Black Defimbo or other nations, we tease the non-native culture because some people say, why would you guys eat a sturgeon or a muskie? They taste fishy, and we're like, yeah, that's what fish are supposed to taste like, like fish. <laughs> and if you don't know how to cook it, then, or if you don't know how to, if, if you don't like it, you probably never cooked it right, so... Interesting, interesting. Well, Doug Cox, uh, how about down in, in Menominee country? How do you folks eat eat sturgeon? Yeah, I mean, similar. You know, we, we've, we've had that passed down just like they have. You know, it's passed down from from eons, not only in, in physically learning how to cook it, but our stories and our legends and our ceremonies. You know, the, the Menominee have a ceremony every spring, and that's been going on for thousands of years. Um, it is called a sturgeon ceremony. Now we've sort of modernized it because of those dams, but end of April we have a huge gathering, a huge powwow, and a, and a massive feast. Um, we take some of those fish that are donated from DNR in that MOU, and we'll smoke those, and we serve them at the feast, and we invite everybody and anybody that wants to come. It's free. You know, come celebrate with us. There's a, there's a historic dance Menominee have it's called a fish dance, and that that dance is part of um, our ode to the sturgeon on their return, and it's been practiced again for thousands of years. Um, it's a sacred dance, part of our stories. During that time, we we prepare those sturgeon; they get smoked, and um, you know, it feeds hundreds of people. Um, they get to t- taste how we prepare those sturgeon, and it's a it's a really important cultural event for us every year young little ones all the way up to our elders participate in this event well doug earlier we heard these stories of of seven foot long sturgeons weighing up to 300 pounds uh nowadays uh what is the average size sturgeon that you see yeah you know the average and it's dropping something you know there's a number of factors it's it's climate it's it's fishing pressure 
um, at least in our populations that we're talking about, down like Winnebago, you know, those, those ones that Greg talked about and, and those those non-natives that are spearing that resource down there. DNR does monitor it, but, you know, they're trying to balance it. You know, the, the average fish isn't isn't um, that big anymore. But, I mean, it's big in, in fish standards, 50 inches probably, you know, you're talking about on the average of a, of a healthy sturgeon population. But, again, that there's those ones in there that that are six and seven feet long. You know, I've seen them also, so they they're in there. But yeah, on the average, they're not they're not huge. And the lifespan. I mean, how many of them can live? Uh, you know, seventy, eighty, ninety years. Is is that are those outliers, or is that kind of the norm that they live that long? No, the, the old the old ones are. You know, there, there's a portion of that population that are them old ones, just like there's a portion that are the young ones so that balance is there but them those older ones those seven footers and, and again in Shawano at that dam on the wolf river the dnr does collect them every year they collected one there that was 200 and i want to say 250 pounds you know over seven feet long you know that, that fish is estimated to be 125 130 years old and when they collected that i, I commented to the dnr folks in our meetings is like do you guys understand that this fish, when when he was young, he was seeing this system without these dams. Think about that. This fish was swimming in this system without these dams that are stopping him today. And he comes back now, you know, at 125 years old and and experiences the, these blockages and not being able to come home anymore. So, that, yeah, I mean, that, that age, they lived that long. And, and there's an important message in, in every one of them. Well, unfortunately, we are going to have to wrap up our show now. We're out of time. But before we do, I want to thank our three guests today, Marvin Defoe, Greg Johnson, and Douglas Cox, for sharing Native insights about the cultural significance of sturgeon, along with risks facing sturgeon populations. Join us on Native America Calling again tomorrow as we cover what you should be thinking about as you prepare your income taxes. Until then, I'm Sean Spruce. As people seek to know diverse cultures, tribal museums and cultural centers grow more popular. So the Institute of American Indian Arts, who support this show, now provides a Master of Fine Arts in Cultural Administration. Focused on social equity and support of cultural community growth, this program combines administrative tools and techniques with socially engaged leadership, blending institutional skills and community outreach programming. Deadline to apply is February 15 at iaia.edu mfaca. Are you a Native American health care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin a six-month advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass looks through the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach to provide powerful, proven modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 24, 2023. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.